Good morning. You probably don't know that I'm back. I mean, you know that I'm, you don't, maybe didn't know that I was gone. Uh, I got back Thursday night from the very same place that, that the Whittles will be going to tomorrow morning, first thing. We've had a total of two whole days in the same neighborhood for at least a little while. I can't tell you what it's done for my heart to watch that little girl grow up and become a woman of God who is passionate about making sure that other people have the opportunity to hear the good news. That's what she'll be speaking into while she's there. She'll be part of a team that, uh, that is doing just that, that's, that's empowering the Bukalo to empower the Agta to reach the unreached people groups there in, uh, in the Bicol region is where that uh, some 100,000 people in several different people groups that have not yet heard. They don't have the good news that you and I know so well. And so uh, a part of the reason that we were, that I was away uh, was because we were putting things in place for some very important people that will be arriving and wanting to make sure that all of that was lined up the way it was and, and uh, actually working through some, some uh, new opportunities that have come along. And, and we're, you know, my goodness, it gets so complicated just trying to follow the lead of the Spirit of God sometimes. And I want you to know that I, I, I worked double time, not just in preparing this message. I was working on it on the plane on the way back. And, but I worked double time, not in just in preparing this message, but in shortening it. Because <laughs> by the time I got home with all the information and actually plugged it in, I thought to myself, we're going to be here till 2 o'clock. And, uh, and so, I, I mean, I, I, in some ways it feels like I brutalized the message. I hope there's enough left over of the truth that, that you can go away and, and take something. And I, I, want, I promise you that I'm going to do my very best to finish before 2 p.m. without, you know, going over significantly. And I, I'm, I'm really hoping to be able to do that, which means I need to stop talking about it right now. But I, I, I can tell you this, that, that even if I don't succeed at that and I end up going 40 minutes or so, um, I, I can promise you, I can promise you without any hesitation that I will not go over next week, primarily because I won't be speaking next week. But, but that, be that as it may, that's a legitimate promise that I can make for you. I mean, you've got to stay healthy so that I can keep that promise, Brian. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series here. I think you probably already know that. We're in the mini... Uh, we're continuing our four-week study on the, the series, Watch the Lamb. Uh, and, and this is part two, and entitled, A Lamb for the Family. And we'll be unpacking Exodus chapters 11 and 12. Last week, Brian walked us through part one of this series as he unpacked Genesis chapter three, where we find a story about a lamb that was sacrificed for a couple named Adam and Eve. And I loved, I loved it because Brian asked us to lean into God's word. And then he went on to point out that God's plan to rescue sinners was in place before God created the world. God was planning to rescue sinners before there were sinners to rescue. Isn't that an awesome thought? And that means that God's plan to rescue you has been in place since before time began. And as Brian said that, I was reminded that God doesn't make his plans in response to things the way I do. He doesn't make his plan in response to things that have happened because unlike me, God never finds himself playing catch-up. He created a perfect world and then we made an imperfect mess of it with our sin, but that didn't leave God saying to himself, well, 
What am I going to do now? We saw God's already planned plan when we studied the story of Ruth. And then last week, Brian turned the clock back to the very beginning of time and showed us that by the time the first people sinned, God's already planned plan was already in place. By the time we humans went, went into hiding, God was already seeking us. By the time we had sinned, God was already reaching out to us. By the time we were deserving destruction, God had already put his perfect plan in motion to save us. And remarkably, God's already planned plan required that the innocent die for the guilty. I hope you caught that last week. And as we saw that last week, we saw last week that, that within minutes of Adam and Eve's sin, within minutes of their sin, God himself shed the blood of a lamb so that he could make garments of skin, so that he could clothe them in the midst of their guilty shame. God himself did that. But as Brian pointed out last week, God wasn't playing catch-up. He was already pursuing us before we began to run away from him. With that review in place, it's time to move on to another story where a lamb was sacrificed, but uh, this time not for a couple, but for a family. In a few minutes, I'll, I'll tell you a story from God's Word, and I do love it when we read God's Word together before we unpack it. But the passage for this morning, just like last week, uh, that we'll be looking at this morning will be too long for us to read together in its entirety, especially if we want to be done with the message be before 2 p.m. We do want to be done with the message before 2 p.m. Would I be accurate in saying that? I, I mean, you didn't weigh in before. How many would be in favor of that? The same three people. I just don't get that. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll do my best. But uh, in that case, you know, we'll, we'll just read a portion of the passage together. And we'll focus on the verses from which will come the core truths of what we'll be talking about later, what we'll discuss. And I hope that pattern will work for you because that's the pattern that we'll be using throughout uh, 2024 uh, as, as we study the book of Genesis together. The, the passages will always be too long to read together, so we'll read the part that's imp not important, it's all important. We'll read the part that we'll be focusing on, and, uh, and then we'll be able to sit down and unpack it. So with that in mind, if you would, please stand with me as we read Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 28 aloud together. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he'll see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Thank you. You can take your seats, and as always, as you get settled again, take a moment, just breathe a prayer, and to ask God to speak to you through His Word by His Spirit. 
this morning. Well, having read those verses together, you probably noticed that that's a a pretty heavy-duty passage of Scripture. And you're probably hoping, as I always hope when I get into one of these stories, that there's a backstory that would help us to understand what's happening here. And to get to the backstory for this story, we'll have to go back more than 400 years to the time of Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. Next year, when we study Genesis, we'll look very closely at the life of Joseph, but for right now and for the purposes of understanding this story this morning, all you really need to know is that Joseph, a Hebrew, a, a Jew, was at one time second in command in all of Egypt. Pharaoh installed him in that position, and Pharaoh and the entire nation of Egypt owed an intense intense debt of gratitude to Joseph because they literally owed him their lives. But as I said a moment ago, that was more than 400 years ago as this story begins. And by the time this story begins, the people of Egypt have long forgotten the debt they owed to Joseph and the Jews. In fact, by the time this story begins... The Egyptians have held the Jews as slaves in their country for nearly four centuries. But God is an abolitionist and is already on the move in Egypt, intent on setting his people free. He has sent Moses to confront Pharaoh to tell him that Yahweh insists that Pharaoh let, his, let Yahweh's people go. Pharaoh was unfazed by what Moses had to say and, and responded with only, Who is Yahweh that I that I should feel inclined to obey him. Well, Pharaoh threw down that gauntlet, and and when he said that, and as Yahweh picked it up, what followed nearly destroyed the nation of Egypt, as Yahweh sent nine devastating plagues that should have made Pharaoh feel inclined to obey Yahweh. But Pharaoh was a hard-hearted man, and he staunchly refused to let his Jewish slaves go free, no matter how hard Yahweh pressed the issue. And now the moment has come for the final showdown between the Pharaoh of all Egypt and Yahweh, the God of all the universe. There'll be one more plague, the tenth. And that plague will be so severe that the question of Israel's freedom will be settled by morning. And with that background, this is the story from God's word from Exodus chapters 11 and 12. God spoke to Moses and told him that he was planning to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and his people in Egypt. God then added that when that tenth plague, that plague, this tenth plague, the last plague, had run its course, the leadership in Egypt would not only let them go, they would insist that they go. They would beg that they go. God shared the details of the plan with Moses. And armed with that information, Moses made his way to the palace to appear before Pharaoh as he had nine times before to warn him of an impending plague. And as Moses stood before Pharaoh, he informed him of what Yahweh was planning for that very night. At about midnight, the God of all the universe would pass throughout Egypt, and unbound by time, he would pause above every household in that instant. And in that instant, every firstborn son in Egypt would die. From the firstborn son of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the, of the female slave who spends her weary days working for her owner. And when that moment of death had passed, there would be wailing in every home in Egypt. A wailing that would be worse than, than had ever been before or would ever come afterwards. 
And having spoken of that wailing and that dreadful warning, and with that dreadful warning in place, Moses spoke to the Israelites and spoke of the Israelites and told Pharaoh that among the Israelites there would be no wailing. In fact, no much, not so much as the, the bark of a dog would be heard. And then Moses warned Pharaoh that when the, he heard the wailing in Egypt and noted the silence in the homes of the Israelites, he, Pharaoh, would finally realize that God made a difference. God made a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Yahweh was making a distinction. And after warning Pharaoh one more time, Moses said, when all of these things that I've warned you about have happened, all of these officials here in your court will come to me and they will beg me saying, go, you and your people, go, please leave. And Moses concluded by saying, after that, I and all the people will leave. I'm raising my voice as I say this because Moses was by then furious with Pharaoh for his stubbornness and his refusal to back down, something that put all of Pharaoh's people in grave danger. And Moses knew that Pharaoh would not back down because Yahweh had already warned Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and he would send this final plague so that Pharaoh and all of Egypt would finally understand who Yahweh is. After Moses left Pharaoh's palace, God spoke to Moses and his brother Aaron and instructed them what all of the people of Israel were to do before midnight. God told Moses and Aaron to tell all of the men who were the heads of households in Israel that they were to go among their flocks and choose one lamb. The chosen animal had to be a yearling that was absolutely without defect. And that yearling could come from either the sheep or the, or the goats. Then at sunset, during the twilight hours, the head of the household was to slaughter the lamb and then take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frame before taking the lamb into the house to roast it over a fire for the evening's feast. Once the roasting was done, the entire family was to put on their cloaks and their sandals, and they were to eat the meal in haste while they were holding their walking sticks in their hand so that they could be ready to leave at daybreak the next morning. And then having finished the meal, they were to wait. And under no circumstances were they to leave the house for any reason. People of Israel followed these instructions to the letter, and then with the tops and sides of the doorframe painted with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, they waited in silence as midnight approached. At midnight, God kept his word. He came above the houses of every family among the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. When he saw the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost and the top of the door, he passed over that house. But he entered the homes of every family where there was no blood on the tops or posts of the door. And as midnight passed, there was safety and silence in Israel. But in the household of Egypt, every firstborn died. So that there was not a house where there was not someone dead. And the silence that midnight began to shred as from the hovels of the poor to the towers of the palace of the Pharaoh, Egypt wept for their dead. First a single cry went up and then another and another and another as death visited every house. Those cries echoed down the dark alleyways among the poor and that echo continued to swell until it reached the towers of the palace. And the weeping continued to swell to a deafening roar until it seemed that all of the dead of all of the ages had simultaneously burst their granite tomb in one discordant wail. 
from midnight had come to Egypt. And that's the story from God's Word. That's a heartbreaking story. And I can tell you that it's excruciatingly difficult to tell it, but I want to be sure this morning that the truth that the story contains is not lost in the horrendous details of the story. I want us to remember that Moses warned Pharaoh about the judgment that would come at midnight. And if we look at Exodus 11, 6 to 7, we'll see the bottom line behind the warning that Moses issued Pharaoh. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Moses warned Pharaoh that by the time midnight came, Pharaoh would know that God made a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. And I'll stand on this pulpit if I need to to make this next point. But I want us to notice this morning that that distinction was not defined by bigotry or prejudice or nationality. That distinction was entirely defined by the fact that the people of Israel believed God and put the blood of the lamb on the tops and doorposts of their doors. The people of Egypt, on the other hand, did not believe God and did not put the blood of a lamb on the tops and doorposts of their doors. That was the distinction. That was why God made the difference. God himself had explained it in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And, that's, and it is exactly that that Moses passed along to the families of Israel in Exodus 12, 23. When the Lord goes through to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. It was not prejudice or bigotry that was the defining difference between the two nations. It was the shed blood of the lamb that was defining the difference. Just as God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God kept his word. And anyone who believed God and applied the blood survived that dreadful night. But anyone who didn't believe God and didn't apply the blood suffered the judgment of God. In other words, the people of Israel were not saved simply because they were from Israel. And the people of Egypt were not judged simply because they were from Egypt. So we're not looking at prejudice here. But instead we're looking at a principle and a pattern from God's word. And to get underneath that idea, I want to remind you you of an easy to overlook part of the story that I just told you. And that is that Moses was furious when he was talking to Pharaoh about the plague of the death of the firstborn. In fact, you can read that for yourselves. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that, that Moses' anger here is just a small shadow that's being cast by God's wrath. God sent Moses to Pharaoh nine times to warn him of coming plagues. And nine times, 
Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And remember the challenge that Pharaoh put before God. Who is Yahweh that I, the Pharaoh of all Egypt, should obey him? Pharaoh is proving himself to be reprobate. Not just wrong, but stubbornly wrong. That's what reprobate is. Not just wrong, but stubbornly wrong. God has given Pharaoh numerous opportunities to repent, to change his mind. And Pharaoh has consistently refused to repent, and the people of Egypt have suffered as a consequence of his pride over and over again. And as Moses grows angry, he's reflecting God's wrath at Pharaoh's proud, unbending, unyielding heart. I say that because Pharaoh isn't backing down, but this story should make it clear that God doesn't back down either. So Moses was furious as he was warning Pharaoh, but according to the passage we read earlier, Moses took a very different tack when it came time to warn the people from Israel. Look what it says in chapter 12, verses 21 and 22. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once, go at once, and select the animals from your family, for your families, and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your house, the door of your house until morning. And this was the pattern and principle that we mentioned earlier is, uh, that comes into play. The pattern is this. Listen. God commands. People sin by disobeying. God warns about judgment to come. People believe God and heed the warning. God makes a provision and people accept that provision by faith. That pattern is repeated over and over and over in the Scripture. We saw that last week. As God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit from the tree that gives the knowledge of good and evil, but Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. God then warned Adam and Eve about the judgment to come, and Adam and Eve believed God and heeded his warning. And so God then made a provision for Adam and Eve by killing an innocent lamb to make coats of skins for Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve accepted that provision by faith as God himself clothed Adam and Eve with the coats that God himself had made. <coughs> and all of this has everything to do with God's grace, and it is vital that we understand this. I'm going to make a statement here that if you don't get it right away, then don't worry about it, because we're going to talk about it as, as time goes on. And I say that, it's vital we understand that, because God's grace, oops, God's grace does not come to us in the form of God's ambivalence. God's grace comes to us in the form of God's provision. God's grace doesn't come to us in the form of God's ambivalence. God's grace comes to us in the form of God's provision. Remember, Pharaoh is stubbornly refusing to believe God. And it didn't matter to Pharaoh that God hates sin and punishes sinful people. And you can see the pattern there as well. God gave Pharaoh numerous opportunities to repent and believe. But Pharaoh flatly refused. And if we take the time to ponder this, we can see that God is neither carefree nor ambivalent about sin. God loved Pharaoh. But God would not allow Pharaoh's proud, reprobate heart to go unchecked. Listen, God hates sin. And God loves the sinner. But that is not ambivalence. God's love for the sinner does not mean that God takes a carefree attitude towards sin. Think about it. God didn't send Moses to Pharaoh to say, you have consistently blown off my warnings, and you've consistently refused to believe what I say, 
and you've consistently declined to let my people go. And I just want you to know now that that's okay because I'm a gracious God and I love you, so your sin and unbelief doesn't really matter that much to me. God didn't say that. Please understand this morning that God's love and grace do not cancel out God's holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath. They don't outweigh each other. And that's why we're saying that God's grace doesn't come to us in the form of God's ambivalence. God never says, yeah, I hate sin, but what are you going to do? I hate sin, and despite that, people insist on sinning, but I'm loving and gracious, so my hands are really tied. I mean, I, I hate sin, but because it's people that are sinning, I guess that their sin has to be okay with me. And that's the issue when we speak of God as being ambivalent about sin. And when we speak of God as being ambivalent about sin, we end up telling people that, yes, God hates sin. And yes, you are a sinner. But no, you don't have to worry about that because God doesn't punish sinful people. Hey, listen, our, our message is not that people should rely on God's ambivalence. And our message is not that, that people should rely on God's love and grace. Our message is that people should rely on God's provision. Look at verse 23 of the passage we read earlier. And while you're looking at it, I'm going to ask you to check my reading to make sure that it's accurate. I love it when you do that for me because you keep me honest. Verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will remember that he is gracious and loving, and because of that, he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down. It's not what it says, is it? What does it say? When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So what was it that would prompt God to turn the destroyer away? God would turn the destroyer away when he saw the blood on the doorposts and tops of the door. And who painted the blood on the doorposts and tops of the door? The head of each family painted the blood on the doorposts and the tops of each door. And why did they do that? Why did they paint the blood there? They painted the blood there because they believed God when he said what? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. They believed it. They believed that God would do what he said he would do. They knew that. And that meant that they knew and believed that God would tell the destroyer to spare the firstborn in any house, in every house, where there was blood on the doorpost. And he would tell the destroyer to kill the firstborn in any house where there was no blood on the doorpost. So in the end, we can see that God had made a provision. Hear me? God had made a provision, and he expected his people to accept that provision by faith. That was his expectation. Let me say it again. God's grace doesn't come to us in the form of God's ambivalence. It comes to us in the form of God's provision. God's not ambivalent about sin. He hates sin, and he punishes sinful people. But God is also gracious and loving, and because of that, he has made a provision. And as we accept that provision by faith, we escape his judgment and anger 
God is loving and gracious with everyone, but he still made a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, but that distinction was not based on their nationality. It was not based on their, their denomination. It was not based on what church they attended. It was not based on how, how much they tried to please God and do the right things. God made the distinction that night based on whether or not he saw the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So where does that leave us? I can tell you where it leaves me. I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that, my, that I sin, and, and my sin separated from me from God. And I know that God is loving and gracious, but I also know that he said that the person who sins will die for their sin. And you've heard me say it a hundred times from this very pulpit. I'm supposed to be punished for my sin, and ultimately I will die for my sin, but the good news is, Jesus has already been punished in my place. Jesus has already died for me as he has for you. That's the good news. And if you were here to study Ruth with us, I can tell you that I've taken God at his word and I believe that Jesus has died for me and that he is my redeemer. He's bought me back. And now the words of Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 have become a reality in, in my life. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and according with, with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In him we have redemption through his blood. And so let me say it again. God's grace doesn't come to us in the form of God's ambivalence. It comes to us in the form of God's provision. Having said that, let me say there's something on my mind and I'd like you to help me think it through. Would you do that for me? Now we know that Moses warned the elders and the elders warned the people about the destroyer, the death angel who, was, who would go among the houses of the people from Egypt and the people from Israel that night around midnight. And just for the sake of this discussion, let's suppose that we could turn time back and I'll become a Hebrew slave in Egypt on the morning of that dreadful night. I'm Jewish, and I've heard from the elder of my tribe that Moses has said that the death angel is coming, and according to Moses, at about midnight, the destroyer will hover above the homes of all the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, and the destroyer will do that because Yahweh, the Almighty, has commanded it, but there's something even more terrifying. The death angel, the destroyer, will kill the firstborn in every one of those homes. And in the end, there will not be a single home where there is not someone dead. But then Moses and the elders went on to say that there was hope. If the head of the family were to kill an unblemished yearling lamb at sunset, and then with a hyssop branch, paint that blood, the blood of that lamb on the sides and tops of the door... And if that family were then to go into that house and remain there throughout that entire night, they would be safe from harm. Because when Yahweh saw the blood on the sides and top of the door, he would instruct the death, death angel to pass over that household and not harm anyone. Are you tracking with me? I, I'm this old guy. I've got a family. I'm in Israel that night. And imagine with me that I stood there and I, and I heard that news and then I hurried home, but not before stopping at my family's pasture to choose the lamb. And being moved by what I heard as soon as the sun began to set, I killed the lamb, I slaughtered the lamb and painted the blood on the doorframe and then hurried my family inside to eat the Passover feast with plans to stay in our home with the door closed, protected by that blood-stained doorframe until morning when the judgment had passed. In other words, 
on behalf of my family by faith, I did everything that we have been told to do to remain safe from God's judgment at the hands of the destroyer. But then, once it was all done and I and my family were safe, I began to rethink Moses' instructions. And I reminded myself that Yahweh is a loving and gracious God who simply wouldn't do what Moses said he's going to do. Sure, God hates saying, I say to myself, but God would never punish the sinner, and that means that all this talk about judgment is wrong. Moses has it all wrong. And having deconstructed my own faith, I make it my mission to deconstruct the faith of others. I go to my neighbors and I tell them that Moses has it wrong. God would, God would never punish sinful people. So you don't have to worry about applying the blood. And as I meet with them, I tell them that instead of painting the blood, they can just stay inside their houses and believe and trust in the love and graciousness of God because God simply wouldn't do what Moses is threatening. And after I do everything that I can to convince my friends, I go back to my own house and as it begins to grow dark and I shut the door behind me to wait out the night together with my family. And while we're imagining what I did as a father, let's imagine this other dad who heard the warning about the destroyer but then heard me say that this whole thing is just wrong because a gracious and loving God would never punish sinful, unbelieving people. And, her, and after hearing me say that, this other dad and heads home to tell his wife and kids what I had said about God, a loving and gracious God who would not send a death angel to destroy anyone. And that other dad kills the lamb and plans a feast with his family, but he decides not to paint the blood on the doorpost and the top of the door. And he made that decision based on what I had said. That other family closes the door of their small house with plans to wait until morning before coming back out. But remember, there is no blood on the doorframe of that little house. So as we get to the question here, let's recap what happened. I painted the blood on the doorframe of my house, but I changed my mind after the blood was applied. But I was able to convince this other dad not to apply the blood, and as midnight approaches... Our door is still blood-stained, but their door is not. So here's my question. As midnight approaches, my family is protected by the shed blood. But the, the other family is only protected by the idea that I taught them. The idea that God is too loving and gracious to ever punish sinful people. And now the hour of midnight has come. So what's going to happen to my family and what's going to happen to that other family? Well, my family will spend the night in a house that has, been, that has a, a blood-stained door frame while that other family will spend the night in a house that does not have a blood-stained door. Instead, that other family has a new idea that God would not actually do what he said he would do because in their opinion, God is too loving and gracious to punish sinful people for their sin. So what do you think? Will, will my family survive the night? And just as importantly, will that other family survive the night? That family that I convinced with my new idea? Well, to find the answer to those questions, we only have to think about this. What was the deal? What had God said? God had said that the destroyer is coming, so you should kill the sacrificial lamb and paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and top of your door. And what else had God said? He said, when I see the blood... When I see the blood, well, you, you, okay. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's what God had said. 
So what will happen to my family in the house with the blood-stained door? Well, God will see the blood on the doorframe. And according to his promise, he will instruct the death angel, the destroyer, to pass over our house, and we will come to no harm because of the shed blood. And what will happen to that other family? That other family who decided not to apply the, door to, the blood to the doorframe, will that other family survive the night? Well, once again, what did God said? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And will he see the blood there? No, he will not. So will they survive? No, they won't. My family will, supply, will survive because the blood was applied, but that other family will not survive because they listened to my new idea and trusted me instead of trusting God, instead of trusting what God had said about the shed blood of the Lamb. And to me, the saddest thing of all about this is that I'm the one who talked them out of applying the blood. And that means that I'm responsible for their deaths. I am responsible for their deaths because I got them to trust what I say instead of trusting what God says. And I say that because at one time I believed what God said. And I applied the blood of the Lamb, but then I deconstructed my faith and gave other people a very different message from the one that was given to me. God warned me, and I heeded his warning. God also warned them, but I taught them not to heed God's warning. And they paid a terrible price. And the only thing that I can say about what I did is that it's just not right. And Claire, sweet girl, as you go out with the gospel, we are charging you to consistently refuse to deconstruct your faith. We're directing you to pass along the same good news that your dad and mom passed to you when you were a child. Hold tight to that message. And don't let anyone talk you out of it. So what's our takeaway this morning? Well, quite simply this. Moses warned the people of Israel and told them the truth. He told them exactly what God had said. And how can we sum this up this morning with what Moses told the people of Israel? Well, for starters, God is just, and because he's just, he sends judgment. But there's more. God is also loving and gracious. And because he's loving and gracious, he provided a way to escape and survive the judgment, the shed blood of the Lamb. So I have to ask this morning, how is it with you today? What are you trusting in this morning as the thing that will bring you forgiveness and life? Are you leaning back into the idea that God is too gracious and loving to punish you for your sin? If you are, then I can tell you this morning on the authority of God's word that you will not survive the day of judgment. Remember, God is loving and gracious, but, in, but his love and graciousness have not prompted him to forego punishing sinful people. Instead, God's love and graciousness have prompted him to provide Jesus to be our redeemer and his shed blood is the ransom price that he paid for us and based on what happened that night in Egypt let me say this let me say this don't walk out that door this morning until you are absolutely certain that the blood of Christ has been applied to your heart by faith because that believe that when he died he died for you Believe that when he shed his blood, he shed his blood for you. Remember that 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know 
that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Those words should sound familiar to you, and they should be the only signal that you need that God has not changed his mind. The deal is still the same. The shed blood of Christ applied to your heart. The people went to bed, of Egypt went to bed that night oblivious to what was going to happen at midnight because no one told them. No one told them of God's judgment that was going to wash over them at midnight. No, them t- no one told them how to escape the judgment and, uh, to come. And, and because of that, they were unable to escape. And in that light, I'd like you to think about this. It's the bad news that makes the good news good. It's the bad news that makes... The bad news is that God is righteous and so he hates sin. And God is also just so he punishes sinful people. That's the bad news. The good news is that God loves us. So he sent his only son to be punished in our place. And God is also gracious so he gives life and forgiveness to all who believe that Jesus died for them and rose again. That's the good news. Moses couldn't stop God from sending the death angel. But Moses could make sure that everyone knew the death angel was coming and that everyone knew that it was the blood of the lamb applied to their doorposts that would stop the death angel from entering their homes. Moses was not the kind of man who'd let people go to their deaths simply because he was hesitant to speak up and warn them. He was not the kind of man who would let people go to their deaths simply because he felt awkward telling them about God's provision, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. No, Moses told them what was going to happen. He, he told them about the judgment to come, and he told them to apply the blood. I want you to look at, as my time is really almost up, verse 24 to 28. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this, this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Not only did Moses tell them, he provided a way for them with God's instruction that they would always be able to remember what happened that night. And the Jewish people celebrated that Passover feast the very next year. And the year after that, and the year after that, and they've celebrated that Passover feast this year as well. This year as well. Because they're anticipating, look at verse 26 again, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes. What does this ceremony mean to you? I want to ask you today, what does the death of Christ mean to you? I hope you've believed in the death of Christ on your behalf. I hope you've trusted him as your Savior. I hope that when we have communion on on the first Sunday of each month that you participate in communion because it means that much to you. You sit there and you remember, as the Israelites remembered the Passover, you sit there and you remember that it was the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ applied to your heart that gave you life and forgiveness. And I hope that you do that with enthusiasm. But is it possible this morning that the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, 
might mean even more to you. You see, Jesus shed his blood and died for you. He also shed his blood for the other members of your family. Jesus shed his blood and died for you, but he also shed his blood and died for the man or the woman who lives near you. Jesus shed his blood and died for you, but he also shed his blood and died for you and died for that kid that goes to school with you. Jesus shed his blood and died for you, but he also shed his blood and died for the thousands of people groups who have not yet heard his name. What does the death of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, mean to you today? It's Christmas, right? I'm begging you to give the gift of life to the people that you love. To pass along the truth that will save them. They need to, they need to hear what you know. And I also pray that you need to tell them, both for their good and for God's glory. Last week, it was a lamb for the couple. This week, it's been a lamb for the family. And next week, it will be another reason to come back when we talk about a lamb for the nation. In the meantime, and in closing, let me read the passage to you for this week one more time. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once. And select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, I pray that you would you'd minister to our hearts, that you'd help us to see the truth that this is all about you. It is all about the shed blood of the Lamb. And the same thing is true today as Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot, shed his own blood for us. God, help that to mean so much to us that we trust you, we believe you today, that when Jesus died for, for when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. He died for the people that are within the hearing of my voice, for people all over the world. And what you expect in response, God, is that I will apply, I will apply the, the blood of Christ to my heart by faith. And I pray that would be true of everyone here. And then send us out, God, to those that need to hear. Help us to give the gift of life this Christmas. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us, what is pleasing to him through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.
were dismissed.